Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream Public Media are made possible by PNC and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Hello, and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland, where we are devoted to conversations of consequence that help democracy thrive. It's Monday, October 17th, and I'm Kristen Beard Adams, President of the City Club Board of Directors. I'm pleased to introduce today's forum, which is the Peter de Leon Endowed Forum on Local Politics. Leading up to the election on November 8th, we at the City Club extended invitations to Ohio's Republican and Democratic candidates for the United States Senate. Today, we are pleased to introduce you to the Democratic candidate, Congressman Tim Ryan. Current, currently, <laughs> currently representing Ohio's 13th District, Congressman Ryan was first elected to the U.S. House of Representatives in 2002 representing Ohio's 17th district prior to redistricting. Now in his 10th term, Ryan serves on the powerful House Appropriations Committee and also co-chairs both the Congressional Manufacturing and Addiction Treatment and Recovery Caucuses. A lifelong Ohioan, Congressman Ryan grew up in Niles where he lives today with his family. He began his career in politics as a congressional aide with the U.S. House of Representatives in 1995 and later served as an intern for the Trumbull County Prosecutor's Office. Ryan holds a law degree from the University of New Hampshire law, uh, School of Law and a bachelor's degree in political science from Bowling Green State University. If you have questions for our speaker, you can text them to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794, and the City Club staff will do their best to work, work it into the program. Members, guests, and friends of the City Club of Cleveland, please join me in welcoming Congressman Tim Ryan. Thank you so much. This is great. Sorry, my hair is a little messed up. It's windy Cleveland <laughs> afternoon out there. Um, I'm honored to be here at a very uh, unique time in our country's history. And I just really, I, I, I don't have a whole lot of prepared remarks, honestly, I just, because I feel like we almost, in the country, like we need to have a conversation, and I'm going to kind of share uh, with all of you what's on my mind and what I'm thinking about. And I've been here before, so I know you have lots of really good questions. <laughs> Uh, that you want to ask, and I'll be happy, uh, you know, to answer those. Let me start by saying good afternoon to my, good afternoon, to my fellow Americans. I want to, I, I want to say it one more time. My fellow Americans, because we are at a moment in our country's history uh, that is very unique, 
We've not been here before with the particular details that we're dealing with today, but I believe that, that there's a sense that we've forgotten, you know, and, and we lost the greatest generation, and we talk a lot about all the military service and people who stormed the beaches at Normandy and how much that informed our society, how much that informed our culture, how much that informed Congress, how many veterans from from the Second World War we had serving in Congress. Daniel went away from Hawaii, Bob Dole from Kansas, different political parties, different views of the world, but yet found those moments where they recognized that they were leaders, not followers, and they made deals. They kept the country moving forward. They kept the country strong. And so, I think we're at that moment again here, and I believe that if we're going to have a, a shift out of where we are now, it needs to start with gratitude. You don't hear a lot of political leaders talk about it. You don't hear a lot of people talk about it. But I think we need to be grateful that we are American citizens. We focus a lot on the challenges that we have, our imperfections that we have as a country. That's the business of a democracy, right? Of talking about the challenges that we face, the problems that we have. But I think it's got to start from a place of gratitude. Um, this country has fed more people, clothed more people, cured more people, and liberated more people than all the other countries in the world combined. It's a special place. Special place. You know, it's a, it's a place that, that developed and was born out of the idea of freedom, a basic human quality, a basic human value. And we've got to be grateful that we, we live in a country where we have the opportunity, the choice, every two years, every four years, every year with local elections, really to, to have, our, have an impact, to have a say, to, to make choices as to what we want the future to be. And I, for one, am tired of that has to be trapped into a blue shirt or a red shirt. Because that's, hate to say it, but like that's not working for us, right? That's not working for the country. That's not working for our kids. That's not working for our grandkids. And I will tell you the last time I was here in 2009, I believe, I was here with a, a congressman from Western PA, Jason Altmaier, former congressman, great guy. We were starting what was called the Tech Belt Initiative. He was from Western PA and I was from Eastern Ohio and had Youngstown and Akron in my congressional district. And it was informed by a trip that I took to China. And watching China develop, invest, infrastructure, technology, and all the rest. And then it came back home, and the, the sentiment was Youngstown, Ohio, was competing with Cleveland. Youngstown was competing with Pittsburgh. Akron was competing with Columbus or Cleveland. And after I experienced that trip, I realized that it was really all of us 
competing against Beijing and Shanghai or Mumbai. And so me and uh, Congressman Altmaier came together and we wanted to create a tech belt initiative that included Cleveland, Akron, Youngstown, and Pittsburgh. Our hospitals, our research institutions, right? Our infrastructure, our talent pool, our location, our water, all of this thing, all of this stuff to outcompete China. And so the last, you know, 10 years or so, I keep watching. I've, I've been in Congress now. I got on the Appropriations Committee. I got on the Defense Appropriations Committee. I go to the classified briefings, and I've been watching very closely the move of China, and we've seen it in particular in the last few months with the wink and the nod to Russia to invade Ukraine. It's not a coincidence. That happened right after the Olympics. Now they're doing military exercises together. Like, I think if we had a nation full of people who served in World War II, they'd be like, that's a problem, right? We, that's coming. We've seen this before, right? A, a fascist dictator-type leader invading a free country. We've seen this. Right. But we're not. We're looking at our phones and we're so distracted and people are working six days a week, seven days a week. And so the problem now is how do you and I stop fighting with each other about a lot of really stupid stuff that is really in many ways, a lot of it irrelevant to the lives of the vast majority of the people in the country. There's very important things we have to discuss. No question but so distracted. And so this conversation and the Senate race that I'm in and the, my role in Congress is about, no, no. We're not going to let a bunch of extremists who storm the Capitol on January 6th and try to overthrow the peaceful transition of government, the peaceful election, build on a lie, destroy the country. I don't care what political party you're from. And I was just walking over here, and <laughs> the guy, you know, love being in Cleveland. It's so fun. <laughs> Young couple walking across the street, and they see me, and they say, Tim Ryan, you know, whatever. He says, um, you got a debate tonight. Good luck. I said, thank you. He said, did you bring your police badge to show at the debate tonight? <laughs> Right? Like Cleveland, there's no filter. You're just going to get it, you know? And I laughed. I said, and I said to the guy, I said, you know, can you believe? I said, I sometimes think about, like, what my grandparents would think if they were still alive, right? That went through the Depression, and presidents got assassinated, and, you know, the war, and all of that. Vietnam, where their kids and nephews went off to war. And, and if they would see, and many of you, you know, may feel this way too, who've been around for a while. I see a little bit of gray hair in this audience. That you couldn't, can't imagine we would be in this position. But here's what I want you to know. Like, we have a choice. This is not thrust upon us. We have to say no to that. And I tease my Republican friends all the time, like, guys, come on. Like, what are we doing? Like, Get this stuff put to bed, and we can start fighting about marginal tax rates again. 
right? The good old days, <laughs> right? We weren't fighting about our democracy. We weren't fighting about insurrections. We weren't fighting about banning books. I mean, come on, this is, this is crazy. And we have to call it out. We have to confront it as Americans so that we can get about the business of rebuilding the middle class, of making sure our kids have opportunity. And so to me, ultimately, that's the conversation that we all need to have. And in Youngstown, you know, we fought really hard for 20 years um, since we started the Tech Bell Initiative. We created Voltage Valley, which is how do we move forward in electric vehicles, right? General Motors put a battery plant. Foxconn bought the old General Motors facility uh, in, in Youngstown, in Lordstown. And now, now we're up to four different electric vehicles, a truck, two cars, and a tractor for farming in the old Lordstown plant. Like, that's the future. And we've been fighting for that for a long time. We have two natural gas power plants that are being built there. We have energy incubators with companies in them that come from Texas and Tennessee and New Mexico that are spinning out of the incubator in downtown Warren, Ohio in buying industrial properties like the old WCI headquarters building in Warren to refurbish it for next generation jobs. And I just share this with you, one, because I'm proud of it, but two, when we sat down over the last 20 years with the Chamber of Commerce, the Port Authority, the Regional Transportation Group, the incubators, nobody said, are you a Democrat? Or are you a Republican? Because I'm not going to work with you. No, it was about our kids. It was about jobs. It was about the future. And that's what we've got to get back to. Because we have a generation of kids that are growing up, and I am concerned. It's issues around mental health. It's issues around trauma. It's issues around opiates, heroin, now fentanyl, that is potentially killing our kids. It's about deaths of despair, suicide rates overdoses, addiction, like these are real things that we have to have honest conversations about. And we've got people who want to turn our schools when we should be focused on shop class and trauma-informed care and robust investments into joint vocational schools. They want to turn our schools into the next battleground in the culture wars. We can't let them. We can't let them. It's up to us. And I'm not asking anyone to sign up to be a Democrat. Like, I'm not. I swear. I say this in front of, like, Democratic Party chairs at my speeches. I'm asking you to sign up to be an American. We've got to be Americans first and recognize with some gratitude, really, you know, the position we're in. It's about these kids. I see some gray hair in here, and I see some kids with really good thick heads of hair here. <laughs> And we're jealous, many of us here, right, fellas? Look at those heads of hair. But that's what it's all about. And so let me just say lastly, and I'll tell you a quick story. We have learned more about the brain in the last 20 years than we have in the previous 200. We understand more today about adverse childhood experiences, which are deep trauma events in kids' lives, 
could be divorce, could be job loss, could be a death, could be a lot of things. And we could now statistically tell that if a kid has one, two, three, four adverse childhood experiences, the chances, right, the chances of them having significant problems in their life as simple as smoking or drinking too much all the way to ending up in prison dramatically increase with the number of adverse childhood experiences you have. We are all too willing to spend $40,000 a year putting kids in prison, right? And what the paradigm shift, the, the mindset and the culture that needs to shift needs to say, we got to invest on the front end of this. Businesses know this better than anybody. How do we invest in the front end? Trauma-informed care, after-school programs, summer school programs, better food, the, the idea of food's connection to depression and mental health issues today. We know. We're at the home of the Cleveland Clinic. Like, we know this stuff, right? But we'll not do anything. And then at the end, when you have a disease or you're really sick, we'll dump all our money in to try to keep you alive when we should be front-loading that to keep people healthy. We have a huge discussion about health care. we got to have a huge national discussion about health and invest into our kids, invest into our schools, invest into our rural areas who could provide good healthy food. This is some simple stuff that we're talking about, all with the major goal of rebuilding the great American middle class so that our kids and our workforce can do the jobs of the future, build the electric vehicles, research, be a part of the STEM curriculum, right? Build the batteries, build the charging stations, build the natural gas plants, all in a move to address climate and bend the curve. And I'll say this too, as a Democrat, you can be hostile to greed, you can be hostile to income inequality, and you can be hostile to a concentration of wealth that adversely affects the vast majority of the other citizens. You can't be hostile to business. Can't be. We've got to work with business. Do I think that someone who can afford to fly themselves to space and build their own space station should like pay a little bit more in taxes? Yeah, I think so, right? And if, you, and if you're making all that money, I hope that you're paying your workers fair with health care and benefits and all the rest. But we have, if we're going to innovate on climate, if we're going to outcompete China, if we're going to outcompete India, we have got to recognize that we're going to out-innovate them. We're going to use all this great creative DNA that we have in the United States to outcompete them. But we just got to make sure everybody's along for the ride. And I go to Marietta, and I go to Portsmouth, and I go to these towns, they don't even have good broadband. Like, how are we possibly going to get them plugged into the global economy? They don't have broadband, they don't have clean water, they don't have robust joint vocational, they got rid of shop class, you gotta do pay to play for your kids to get in the sports. Like, that doesn't make any sense. If you were a business and these were your workers, you'd say, we gotta invest some money here. We gotta invest some money here. You know, and to all those people who think that the government doesn't really work too well, I want to say publicly here at the Cleveland City Club, I agree with you. Government is broken. 
which means we can't have a bunch of stupid fights about dumb stuff. We got to enter, you know, leave the age of stupidity behind us and move into an age of possibility and an age of reform, which is going to take ideas from the left and ideas from the right to come together. If I wanted to order a book right now, or a skillet or anything else, get my phone out, Mayor, right? And I'd get the guy, go to Amazon. Andrea Ryan, my wife said we need a skillet. Okay, honey, I'm your guy, <laughs> right? <laughs> I'm gonna get on Amazon, I'm gonna order my wife a skillet. Be at my house in three days. Right? Front porch. Dogs will bark. It'll be a whole scene. You just, you just hope you're not on a Zoom call when they deliver it, right? So, so, but what I'm saying is, if you're in the middle of a pandemic and you need your unemployment check, it takes three months. Government's broken. Right? The defense industries, you know, obviously the, the top shelf example of waste in government. But we need to modernize. We got to get this government humming. So Democrats can't defend the indefensible. It needs fixed. It needs reformed. Goals are good. Lift people out of poverty, educate, and all the rest. But it's going to take an era of reform. I want to tell you one last story. I've been around the state a lot, and people watch on TV, and they say, you know, with everything going on in the culture, some of the stuff that I just talked about, they say, why do you talk about jobs so much with all this crazy stuff happening? And I said, let me tell you about my grandfather. My grandfather was a steel worker in Niles, Ohio for 40 years. He worked 40 hours a week, five days a week, had a good job, treasurer of the union, good job. And he, you know, I asked people, I said, you know what he did with his free time? They say, what did he do? I said, well, he's first generation Italian-American, so he had a garden. You're not Italian in Niles unless you have a garden. But he was the lead usher at 1045 Mass at Our Lady of Mount Carmel Church. He ran the beer tent at the summer festival at the church because he had time because he had a good job. He was able to give back. He was able to participate in the civic life of his community, and he chose to do it through his church because he had a good job. He wasn't working six days a week, wasn't working seven days a week. He was able to do that. And he told us, you always vote for the school levies. You always vote for the police and fire levies. You always vote for the mental health levies. You always vote for the library levies. Why? because they build a strong community for you. But he could do that because he had a good job. And every Saturday night, I'll never forget, him and my grandmother, they'd get all dressed up, and they'd get with my great aunts and great uncles. They'd have a few drinks, and they'd go out, and they would dance to the big bands. They had joy. They had happiness. You know, they, they were pursuing happiness because they had a good job, you know? And, and many of you have had to do this at different points when someone close to you passes away. Um, when my grandfather passed away, um, 
it was devil. He was my guy. Like my grandfather was absolutely my guy. But my mom said we got to go get grandpa's stuff, right? And we got to go down the house. We got to get the stuff. And he was my guy. Like my grandfather was at every event, every game I ever played from like this high little league to like star of the high school football team. I would look up in the stands and I'd see my grandfather always there. So when he died, I was devastated. Mom says, we got to go get the stuff. Let's go down the house, getting the stuff. Flipping through, I find this little book. Book's called The Legacy of Our Lady of Mount Carmel Church. I see the book. Now I'm flipping through the pages of the book. What do I see? Picture my grandfather. You know, when someone dies and then you see that first picture, you're like, oh, my God, there he is. Hey, looking at the picture. His hair is much darker than I ever remembered it. His face was a lot thinner than I ever remembered it. And he had work clothes on, and he had the hat on that, like, the immigrants used to, immigrant families used to wear. My grandmother called it a coupaline. He had the coupaline on. And he's standing there, and I look at the picture. I'm looking at him, and underneath the picture it says, John Rizzi, volunteer. That's my guy. That's, of course, that's Grandpa, right? Giving back, serving, helping others. That's what he did. And he's standing in front of a half-built brick wall that I later come to find out that that half-built brick wall became Our Lady of Mount Carmel grade school that I went to and that my brother went to. And all the little Italian Catholic boys and girls in that town went to that school. He was literally building my future. He was building my brother's future. He was building the future for all those kids that went to that school. And I just think when you strip away all of this craziness in the country today, all the negativity around politics and all the rest, what's this come down to? It comes down to are we building a future for our kids and for our grandkids? Are we taking this precious little gift called the United States of America, this democracy, and are we going to pass it along to our kids and grandkids in a little bit better shape than we found it. That's what this is all about. Thank you so much for being here. We're about to begin the, the audience Q&A. We welcome questions from everyone, City Club members, guests, students, and those joining us via our live stream at cityclub.org. If you'd like to tweet a question for our speaker, please tweet it at the City Club. You can also text it to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. And the City Club staff will do its best to work it into the program. May we have our first question, please. Good afternoon, Congressman. Thank you for being here today. My question is, you spoke about the Chinese, some of the military exercises that they're doing. With that context, how real is the threat of foreign influence on American democracy? 
I think it's I think it's real. I mean, you all you have to do is look at um, social media, and I appreciate the question. Um, all you have to do is look at social media. If some event happens in the United States, um, it could be a school shooting, it could be some kind of race-related uh, issue in the country. You will, if you follow social media, like not like from a cyber perspective, you will see China, Russia, Iran, North Korea immediately have bots on social media trying to define the conversation like right out of the chute in the United States. And that has been a big part of, you know, you see a school shooting and everybody jumps into their camps of like, oh my God, how can this happen again to like, we need to protect gun owners' rights. Like, how did that just happen? Like within an hour of a, of a huge tragedy. And so this level of influence, trying to shape our own culture is very, very profound. And obviously cyber attacks are happening all the time. We saw it with airports a few weeks ago, banks, financial institutions, schools, politicians, all the rest. You know, it happens, it happens a lot. So they're trying to influence us in a variety of different ways through our culture, but they're also trying to steal secrets. Now, especially if our, our companies are doing business in China, I've had a lot of conversations over the years where intellectual property gets stolen and there's a lot of other issues when you're in country. I know when, when members of Congress travel, they advise us, you just leave your phone at home. Like they'll give you a burner phone to take with you to call your, you know, your family, but you leave your stuff here because that's how profound it is going into your, you know, going into hotel rooms and looking at your computers and all kinds of stuff. Uh, good afternoon. Uh, my name is Merle Johnson. I'm a member of the State Board of Education. And one of the things that I've always appreciated about you is that you constantly talk about trauma-informed care. And you know, research has shown that trauma certainly has an impact. It shuts down the thinking brain uh, and makes the survival brain dominant, uh, keeps students from being able to self-regulate um, and retain information. So as a senator, um, my question is, what could you do as senator to really uh, get people in the country to understand the importance of trauma-informed care and the need for our educators, all of them, to be trained in trauma-informed care so that our students can begin to be more successful? And I'm especially talking about the systemic racism in this country that causes African Americans to experience racial trauma every single day. Thank you, and I appreciate your constant drumbeat on trauma-informed care as well, and I, I think it's really important. This should not be, a, again, this should not be a, a partisan issue, like trauma is trauma is trauma. And I came to this through my work um, with veterans, um, and we would look at brain scans and fMRIs, which is like when you take a video of someone's uh, brain as opposed to an MRI, which is a picture, and you would look at um, veterans and the trauma that they had. Obviously very, very severe, but we have, a lot of, we have a lot of young people, we have a lot of people in our country, but a lot of young people when your brain is still developing going through similar, um, you know, they, they experience domestic violence themselves or in their household, huge issues, violence in the community, gunshots, people getting killed, parents getting killed, drug abuse, all of this. And, and what it has done is 
it makes their brain incapable of learning because you are constantly in fight or flight mode. There's the, there's the other uh, physical you know, component of that too where you know, it, it causes inflammation in your body and causes you to get sick and reduces your immune system and all that. But it literally, when your brain is in fight or flight mode, you're in survival mode. So your executive function of your brain, which is what you need for concentration, what you need for decision making, working memory, like all the things that you need to be able to learn is literally shut down. So again, this is when I, when I talk about an age of reform that is not partisan, it is to address this very issue by saying, okay, if we're gonna redesign a 21st century um, education system, that's where you start. <laughs> because any other money you're dumping into the program is like not gonna get you there because it's gonna go to waste because your kids are in fight or flight mode and so they can't learn. And so what I would like to do, one is to open up a broad national conversation on this, um, for, about this with the educational community. It's gotta, it's gotta be like a whole of government thing. You also have to get into our colleges and universities so that the teachers coming in, the new teachers, um, are really committed and understand the importance of trauma-informed care. I think we need to continue to build partnerships. I know some schools up here are doing it. We're doing it with Akron Children's and Warren City Schools uh, where we start getting doctors and nurses into the schools where they can start teaching things that can help kids deal with the trauma that they have connecting it to the medical field. I think that's really, really important. So opening up a national conversation, reform, and then investments to follow. And then lastly, I will just say, we've got to have a renewed commitment for civic engagement in public service. You know, I've served in Congress 20 years, state senate for 22 years. I'm proud of my service. Like you're never going to see me like run down public service or trash people who want to like get into elected office. Like we got to get the bandits out of elected office. And you need people who are committed to their communities and to trying to do some good things. I think that's really important. But you know what else we need? We need teachers. Now, coming out of the pandemic, this is, a, this is an honest conversation we all got to have. Young people are saying, I'm not going into teaching. Young people are saying, I'm not going into nursing. Young people are saying, I'm not going to go be a cop. Right? Who's going to run the country? Cops, teachers, and, and uh, nurses. <laughs> like... Pretty important positions. You know, we had the pandemic and the whole thing was going down and it was like essential workers. We're just gonna take care of the essential workers. About a weekend and everyone's like, everyone's essential, <laughs> right? We're like, no kidding, everyone's essential. Person at the grocery store is essential. Person at the hospital is essential. Our teachers are essential. I got a funny quick story I'll tell you. When, we, when it was the, the moment of, um, of virtual learning. My wife's a teacher. She's taught for 20 years. And, um, and she was doing virtual learning. And she said, you got to see this text. You know, we were all going nuts because the kids are home, the dogs are home. It's like, how do we get these kids back to school? And so, and so well, it was a conversation we were all having. And so um, my wife gets a text from a mom. Now, we're, I think we're weeks in now to like kids being home. And the text was like, Mrs. Ryan, Thank you so much for what you're doing. We can't thank you enough as parents. And 
um, you guys don't get paid enough. Like we le- like, like this, you can see where this woman's coming from. She's like, you don't get paid enough. You teachers need to get paid more for what you do. And by the way, this kid at my house right now, I may have given birth to him, but he's actually yours and you need to come get him. And <laughs> so anyway. Thank you for coming today. Most of the polls say that this race is very close, so it's competitive. Could you give us, aside from money, can you give us one or two or three strategies that could catapult the race from competitive to winnable, especially since there's so many things like inflation going on that you don't have control over? What are things that you could say or do? Yeah, that's a great question. I am going to steal from coach tito on this one because there's a lot of people who think you know like you got this big payroll you're the yankees right and you got all the analytics on your side and and so that's like one way just more money and more this and more that more fancy stuff um versus the guardians like is that a big home run at the end how about we hit five singles in a row and we win the game right I take your analytics. We're going old school. We're going to hit some singles. We're going to get the bat on the ball. And I think it's very similar. Um, knock on doors. Call your friends. Friend-to-friend cards. Like, we have taken this campaign, and we are going old school with it. Um, and so we would just ask people who are willing um, to obviously participate in that. But it's going to be a huge grassroots effort in the next three weeks to get people out to vote. And uh, we're very, very excited about, about what's going to happen here in Ohio. And I think it's, it's really an example for the, for the country is what I've talked to you about. I talk a lot about, you know, around the state, and we've been getting a very, very good response. But I will just say I think there's an opportunity for us here in Ohio for, for people, as I said, to sign up to be Americans first, really to send a signal to the country. I think if, if, if we can win this race, um, that it will be a signal that Tim Ryan is like a normal guy, you know, from a normal place with a normal family um, who wants to make a difference, like who wants to serve and wants to do good and recognizes, if you've seen the commercial with me and my wife in it, um, you know, if you're doing seven out of ten with your spouse, you're having a hell of a day in agreements, right? So why would you think you're going to agree with me ten out of ten? or your congressman or senator, like it's not gonna happen, so stop. And I think we can send a signal to the country here in Ohio that we do wanna put the age of stupidity behind us and we wanna move into an age of possibility where we can come together as Americans and do some really great and exciting things. And, and the, I think the world would watch Ohio on election night and say, maybe, we're, maybe we moved on, just maybe we moved on. And I would be proud to be a part of that, so thank you. Yes, sir. Um, yeah. Hi, Mr. Ryan. Um, this is I'm, one of the guys with the good head of hair I was talking about over there. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I'm really self-conscious about my hair, too. Huh? <laughs> yeah. So I'm Kevin, and I'm a junior at Hawking High School, and I'm here with my U.S. history class. So my question for you is, what do you think about China's current like climate policies, and why do you think it's China's burden to solve it for the entire world instead of countries with the highest per capita emissions like Bahrain or UAE or Kuwait? Yeah. Thank you. I think you're right to say... Um, 
you know, China's kind of a weird animal on this one because um, they, they see the economic benefits of going into the industries of the future, whether it's electric vehicles or some of these other um, industries, that we absolutely cannot let them dominate. We have to dominate those industries of the future. Meanwhile, they're putting on one coal-fired power plant a week uh, in China which is not the direction we want to be moving in. And so when I talk a lot about natural gas here in Ohio, I think it's really important for us to figure out a long-term plan in the country. Um, and again, I don't want plans that are going to like work for two years and then the other party gets in and completely reverses what the other party did for the previous two years, because that's not a long-term strategy on climate or really on any trauma-informed care or anything else. So. I want us to have, because this is global, um, and it can be very difficult for us to get global agreements from other countries around the world. That's a difficult proposition. What I think we should do, um, and I, you know, I have conversations with people who don't always agree with this, but I think the facts bear itself out. Itself out. From 2005 to 2019, the largest carbon uh, emission reduction in the world was in the United States. It's when we moved from natural gas, uh, from, from coal to natural gas. And so what I would like us to do now with Europe and all their problems that they're having with Putin because of Ukraine and all the rest, um, I would like us to figure out how we get natural gas from Eastern Ohio to Eastern Europe. And I want us to figure out how we get natural gas to China because if it makes sense for them economically, they'll buy it. If we do that in the next 10 years, we can meet like 70% of our global climate goals. And at the same time, we are investing all in on being Americans. Wind, solar, hydrogen, all the, all the other things that are yet carbon captured, yet to come online. I think that's like a strategy we all could agree on, you know, to me. And that, for you, I look at my kids, you know, Mason's 19, Bella's 18, Brady's eight. Like, we've got to get to work here on this. So let's put a plan together that's actually going to be sustainable through both parties. And, and that will reduce global carbon emissions. So if we're having a fight with Bahrain or Saudi Arabia or somebody, like, that's not going to stop the entire initiative from happening. We get the economics on our side. I think, you know, ultimately for me, that's the, that's the position we want to be in. And, and we had, I wanted to, just so you know, like historically, like we had a position against the Soviet Union for the entire Cold War. It didn't matter if it was Eisenhower, Kennedy, Johnson, Nixon, you know, Ford, Carter. Like we had a plan that we stuck to with, it was the American plan, you know, and then Reagan came in and, and juiced it a little bit and the wall fell. Uh, years later, and then we had all kinds of other issues we had to deal with. But there was, the key was we had an American plan, and I think we need an American energy plan, and I think Ohio can absolutely be the arsenal of energy, and that will help us bring more manufacturing to Ohio because we'll be able to keep costs low because of the natural gas. So it can all fit together, and it doesn't have to be like some partisan food fight. It's like, that's the plan, let's move forward. 
Uh, good afternoon, Congressman Tim Ryan. I commend you for representing Northeastern Ohio region and for you to try to bring jobs in the area. And you mentioned like how like we need to invest uh, young people into like, I mean, good healthcare systems, I mean, nutritious diets, um, more recreational activities. Um, my only concern is like, I mean, the Northeast region, like the Rust Belt, it's been like, I mean, abandoned, like with people leaving the region for years years, like even um, Democratic candidate um, Nan Whaley has said that Ohio is a great state of um, export graduates. So in what ways could like we revitalize the northeastern Ohio region um, in regards to like urban planning and rail transportation infrastructure and housing, which is a really big issue because housing is so expensive nowadays that if people can't afford somewhere to rent, they're going to have a hard time taking on the job because the wage doesn't pay enough. Thank you, sir. Yeah, that's great. Great uh, question. Thank you for, for doing that. Um, I got to tell you, I'm, I'm pumped about Cleveland. Like, I'm, I'm pumped about the future of this, this town. I'm, I'm pumped about the future of Cuyahoga County. I got into politics from the very beginning was to, like, wasn't some grand plan to have con the conversations we're having today. It was like, I'm from the Mahoning Valley. Like, it's corrupt. All, all my friends have left. And I'm, I'm going to stay here and do everything I can to help rebuild it. And, like, the downtowns were boarded up. And, like, we went all in for 20 years. And now we've got like, you know, Luke Bryant concerts and Zach Brown band concerts in downtown Youngstown, Packard, old Packard Music Hall from the Packard brothers who started Packard Car and all the rest. Like we got great concerts in there. We got breweries, we got wineries, we got restaurants and all the good jobs that I mentioned around electric vehicles and battery storage. And we're doing a whole thing on hypersonics to outcompete China on hypersonics. We're doing a big research thing and the downtowns are hopping. And so like that's what I really love doing, the economic development piece, and we'll absolutely use the Senate. So I'm so pumped about Justin Bibb. Uh, you know, I'm really like, I see, I, I, see you ha I, I tell him, you know, pull him to the side, but like doing a political event. I'm like, you have any idea how much fun we're going to have together with Cleveland? He's like, yeah, I think we're going to have a good time because I'm going to try to get on the Appropriations Committee uh, in the Senate. And let's, let's, you know, talk about the North Shore Right. Talk about what we want to do there. Let's talk about how we parlay our, you know, biotech, how we parlay our health care, how we parlay, you know, the manufacturing of the future. How do we work together with business to make that happen? I'm really excited about that and being in a position to help, you know, bring money back to help help Northeast Ohio. Really, we have a great opportunity. People are moving out of the West because of the cost, which I think we need complete investments, tax credits for low-income housing, which is going to be key. But, you know, people started moving from California, then they went to, you know, then they went to Arizona and Vegas and Salt Lake City and then the Austin, and now they're, they keep looking and we're like, we got a spot for you right here in Ohio, right? Come to Cleveland, uh, come to Akron, come to Columbus, come to Youngstown, like come to Toledo. We've got great communities and we want to, you can grow here and have a lot more money to invest into your company because you're paying your engineers really good salaries for Ohio, but not really good salaries for California. So you're gonna have a senator that's gonna be like waving the flag of how do we get venture capital to come here? And uh, you know, I've been doing this for a long time. We put a bunch of venture capitalists on a bus uh, and we brought them to Ohio to look at Ohio because they most venture capital investments only go to California, Boston, 
New York, now a little bit more in Texas. We want to make sure that that investment gets spread around the country. And how do we lay the groundwork with public investments around broadband, clean water, workforce development in an effective way to make all of these places and get them on the menu for growth? We just got to get communities on the menu for growth. So businesses look at them. But they look at, you know, with the Intel project, we got to, they're going to bring 30 or 40 suppliers. Like, they're not going to look at towns that don't have broadband. They're not going to look at towns that don't have clean water or good schools. So if we want them to locate, and I've already talked to the CEO about this, locate one of your suppliers who doesn't have to be next to the main fab in Columbus, how do you work with us to get you to put these different suppliers around the state? You can't do that unless the state has, those communities have good infrastructure. Yeah. I think the clock's ticking here, so. Oh, we've got. A, I know how vigilant you are with getting out of here. So. Um, we've got a few extra minutes to, okay. to give to you, but um, I have a text question because we've gotten quite a few from our virtual audience. So this is, please talk about the policies that we should, could Im implement to support families from the time a child is born to ease the challenges of raising children. And how do we build bipartisan support for these? That's a great question. Obviously, the, the simple ones are, you know, childcare, um, universal preschool, those kind of things. But just to give everybody a sense of how I think about this stuff, um, I got an earmark last year with uh, a local hospital, Mercy Health in Youngstown, and we started a program called Centering Pregnancy. I got a million dollars for it. This is a, an approach where you sit down with like 10 or 12 uh, pregnant moms um, and you in a doctor and you meet every couple of weeks and this is like going all in on the infant mortality issue which is significant in Ohio but really significant uh, in the black community with black women and so this program is a way for us to start educating moms at a very you know very early stage in their pregnancy on how to be healthy and how to take care of the um, the fetus and how to make sure that, that they're getting the nutrients that they need. And then how do you learn how to breastfeed and so all these other things that we need to do to start building out kind of the infrastructure of building healthy kids. And the same with diet, nutrition, and formula and all the rest. There's just got to be an emphasis, again, from the very beginning, it's got to be the focus of, we spend two and a half times, last I checked, two and a half times more on our healthcare system than every other industrialized country, and we get worse results. What are we doing? Age of reform, right? Age of reform. Democrats, Republicans saying, that's stupid. Let's figure that out. That would mean significant investments with innovative programs on the front end, like the centering pregnancy one, and then there's a centering parenting one where you actually keep those groups together. So you get into small groups with the advice of the, the medical field to be able to um, get people healthy. Yep. Con Congressman, if you look at what's happening in the country today, I think the biggest issue that people are concerned about is inflation. I think it's hitting people, a lot of modest people with modest income, pretty hard. How do you plan to deal with it if you were elected to senator, and what do you think the solutions are? I think the short-term solution is you've got to figure out how to put money in people's pockets. I just think we need a tax cut for, for working people. We had one last year that expired. It was the child tax credit that we were advancing into people's pockets. Um, so like whatever we got to do for small business um, and workers now to get money in their pockets. They didn't do anything wrong. 
and, and they're suffering the consequences. And you could be a black home health care worker here in Cleveland who's got to drive all over the place, or you could be a white construction worker down along the Ohio River who's got to drive all over the place to your job. Either way, $3.85 gas is crushing you, plus the food costs. So let's put money in their pocket. That's in the short term to ride this thing out. Got to get the supply chains back. This has been a 40-year plan of outsourcing. That was the smartest thing we could do. Jobs moved to, you know, China, all over Asia. Um, we've got to get those back. And I think we're laying the groundwork for getting a lot of that back. Like, even right now, 90% of our, our pharmaceuticals are, come from China. Like, it's, it's crazy. We only have, like, three-month supplies that are actually here in the country. So we've got to bring that stuff back. That's why the chips bill was so important, because um, the semiconductors and the chips are so needed. Like, you look at the inflation um, in the auto industry. They don't have chips to go in the cars, to get the cars on the lots, to sell them. And so it's driven the prices up and, and has done the same with um, rentals. So manufacturing chips here will alleviate that problem, um, bringing pharmaceuticals back. And I think we should use an industrial policy. I've been screaming about this for 20 years. Chips is the first step where we're actually saying, like, yes, we will give you money, like, like Ohio would do, to locate a company in Ohio to go to Parma. Like, you know, Mayor DeGeter would say, you know, what do we got to do to get you to locate here? Or, you know, Mayor Bibb would say, what do we got to do to locate you here? They'd say, we're going to give you incentives to come here. And the state jobs Ohio would come in and say, well, we'll give you incentives to come here. So this is basically the nation saying, we will give you incentives to grow here because other countries are doing it. I don't like that system. I, I hate the fact that states and cities and towns got to compete for that stuff. But it's the system. If Germany's doing it, if China's doing it, we have to be in the game. And we did it, and the Intel project went from a $20 billion project and 3,000 jobs to a $100 billion investment that's going to happen in Ohio because we put billions of dollars on the table. It makes sense to me. So we should do that in some of these other industries as well, artificial intelligence, pharmaceuticals. It's maddening, but it's the way we got to go. And I think that will help us control um, any inflation into the future, where we'll have a little bit more control. It's not going to be a magic wand, inflation happens. But I think to be in such a dramatic position is because supply chains locked up, China had a zero COVID policy, which was very extreme, and that locked up supply chains, and we're still paying the price. And you have some gouging going on. There's no question. You know, I talked to local, you know, local contractors and stuff, and there's like, you know, we're getting screwed. That's my official economic word for it, too. Yeah. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you, Congressman Ryan, for joining us at the City Club of Cleveland today. Today's forum was the Peter DeLeon Endowed Forum on Local Politics. An attorney and labor expert and former City Club Board President, I might add, Mr. DeLeon was a member of the City Club for 68 years. In 1967, Mr. DeLeon defended segregationist Alabama Governor George Wallace's right to appear at the City Club but felt obligated to picket and protest outside of the venue. <laughs> a story that is so very integral to our history. 
1987, he became the first person to be inducted into the City Club Hall of Fame while still living. His daughter, Paulette Novak, is here with us today and remains active with the City Club. Paulette, thank you for your support and for being here today. We appreciate the family's gift and long-term long support of the City Club. We would also... We would also like to welcome guests at the tables hosted by the Cleveland Teachers Union, Cuyahoga County Young Democrats, Friends of Peter DeLeon, Hawken, and Team Neo. Thank you all for being here today and for your support. Be sure to join us for the City Club annual meeting on Friday, October 28th. Dave Isay, founder of StoryCorps, will talk about his exciting project and very timely, One Small Step. Tickets are still available, and you can find out more about this forum and others um, at our website, cityclub.org. And that brings us to the end of today's forum. Thank you once again, Congressman Ryan, and thank you, members, friends, and guests of the City Club. This forum is now adjourned. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream Public Media are made possible by PNC and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.